Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Novogratz, and this is Next with Nova. Today, we'll start with Alex Duran, not related to Roberta Duran or Duran Duran, but Alex Duran, uh, who actually works at Galaxy Gives, our uh, philanthropy organization. And uh, he's got a pretty fantastic story, uh, a story of uh, really second chances. Uh, and, you know, criminal justice is a big part of uh, our work here in my life. And uh, there's no better example that I've met uh, to date than Alex. And so, Alex, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Mike, and congratulations on launching the podcast. Uh, thank it's you. It's an honor to be here. Hey, so why don't you just start by giving us your story? So I was raised in the University Heights section of the Bronx. I was born there in the 80s era, Reaganomics. Um, and, you know, my neighborhood was systematically disinvested in. So my parents immigrated from the Dominican Republic to the United States in 1980. And uh, I was born actually in Washington Heights and moved as a toddler to the Bronx. And, uh, you know, my parents sent me to school thinking that um, America was the promised land. And I remember early on in one of our um, dinner conversations that my father told my older sister, hey, close your mouth. Don't they teach you any education in school? Like his frame of mind was like of a boarding school that slapped you with a ruler and told, told you, you know, how to behave. Um, you know, all the things that I was learning in the public school system was kind of contrary to that. So, you know, one of the things we, I've learned to think about and, and try to talk about or experience is this idea of proximity. Brian Stevenson always says, you don't really understand a neighborhood unless you have proximity. And mm -hmm. so, you know, a lot of people have no idea what the Bronx is like or the Bronx back then is like. So try to give us a little proximity, you know, a metaphoric journey to some proximity. Like how, how tough is a tough neighborhood? Like explain like what was growing up like. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing that I want to emphasize is I, most of the people in my neighborhood were working class folks. The majority of them were trying to you know, work a nine to five jobs and they were struggling, but they were just trying to get by and trying to put food on the table for their um, family. Uh, you know, you, in the neighborhood that I grew up, yes, I had to sidestep crack vials in the morning and wash out for gunshots at night, but there was also a lot of love and a lot of community carry. Um, and, and, and that neighborhood um, shaped me into the person that I am today. So crack vials in the morning, it, it was that a regular thing or was that oh, a... Oh, sure. I mean, in the 1980s, that was, that was a regular thing. That was all over the hallways, front of the building, walking to school. Um, that was a constant. The back of the school, you saw it. How old were you the first time you knew someone who died? I mean, I saw um, neighbors in front of the building using drugs, um, sometimes sleeping on the floor of my second um, floor apartment. Um, like they were all around my building, drug addicts. And like, you would just hear that someone, you know, had passed away or disappear into the prison system. Um, those were, you know, two of the things that the elders used to say, like, you know, drugs will only lead to prison or death. And when you were middle school, you're 13, 14 years old. Were you still going to school? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I dropped out of high school when I was a sophomore. 
Um, but I was still going to school. I was still, you know, I, I, I wasn't a great student. Um, but I remember that, you know, the, the teacher putting her leg up in the, in the desk and just like giving up on us. Um, and that was um, something that you probably didn't see in your school, Mike, where the teachers were more competent and caring and, and actually took a, a, you know, a real compassionate um, sense of duty to the job. All right. And so you drop out of school, you're a sophomore, you're 15 years old, and you dropped out because you were just eh, enough or just didn't care, running with the wrong crowd. How do you, how does a 15 year old drop out of school? It was some of that, but uh, um, I thought that I had a better life in stocking groceries at the local supermarket. And that was my first job. Um, I was a, 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 a coming out of high school. I had a job from three to nine, um, three o'clock in the afternoon, nine o'clock at night. Um, and I had some money in my pocket and that felt good. I felt that m my choices were were better in, in just working than, than going to school. And your mom and dad. They were happy that you were working. My dad sort of took the tack that you know it's, it's better for you to you know if you if, if you're not gonna go to school you better work. Uh, my mom wanted me to complete high school, um, but she I don't think she understood all the challenges that I was going through in school. How did you get yourself in trouble? So, even though I was working legitimately in the supermarket, I was still hanging out with with, with guys from my block in my neighborhood, um, and we ran as a crew and. Um, you know, one day I was involved in a shootout in the Bronx um, where someone unfortunately lost their lives. Um, and it was me and my co-defendant who got arrested for it, even though I wasn't the shooter um, that, that pulled the trigger that killed Dennis Hernandez on that day. Uh, I was there. Um, I knew something was going to happen. I didn't think my co-defendant was going to kill Mr. Hernandez, but, um, you know, New York's laws say that if you're acting in concert with someone, um, you're just as guilty as them. So felony murder laws. Yeah. Um, and I, do and those I, laws still exist in New York? They do. They're acting in concert for sure. Um, and you know, but I was also living the street culture where like snitching wasn't an option. The prosecutor did owe for me three and a half years to testify against my co-defendant. And I turned that down. So you turned down three and a half years and you end up getting? Uh, I copped out, took a plea um, of 14 years in prison. So what goes to a, you were 17? I was 20 actually. Oh, 20 at the time. Yeah. So what goes to a 20 year old's head to say, I'll take 14 years versus three and a half to protect your buddy that was actually going to go to jail anyways. Yeah, Mikey. I mean, one thing you got to understand when you're sort of steeped into that culture of the streets, and plus I, I had 29 months in Rikers Island waiting for my case to be adjudicated. So even, um, you know, had I been home, right, if I, if I would have gotten bail, right, something that you're working on, um, the foundation is working on, um, I probably would have made a different decision, but I was so steeped in the culture of prison, so you, already, you were already life. 29 months in Rikers before you were found guilty. That's correct. 29 months. Yes. And you had a, a court-appointed attorney from the Bronx Defenders or Legal Aid. Where was your... I had a... Or did you hire your own attorney? No, uh, I wish. Um, I had a, what they call an 18B, um, which is uh, a lawyer that 
it's not necessarily um, working for the city. They have their own law firm, but it hires, um, right. the, the city hires out these attorney to uh, kind of line up the load, their cases. 29 months at Rikers, even before you were found guilty. That's crazy. Um, talk about Rikers a little bit. Um, Rikers, um, it's a doggy dog world. Um, getting into a lot of fights um, for the phone, for the food, um, having a lot of trouble with the guards. Um, there's really nothing to do there. Uh, it's it's a place where, you know, there's, there's no opportunity for re- rehabilitation. Most of the folks incarcerated there are not thinking about bettering themselves, but rather getting out of prison. Um, know, the, the, the sort of um, miasma of Rikers Island is such that, you know, it's, it's an environment that breeds violence um, and nothing productive comes out of it. It was interesting. I, we, we went and visited last year. I talked to a bunch of guys. One guy was giant, big, beautiful guy. He'd been an all-star uh, football player, and then he went on a scholarship. He got hurt and got into trouble. But he was probably 6'8", 250 of muscle. And I said, well, it's good to be bigger. He said, no, no, no. Everyone wants to take the big guy out. And I was like, even 2019? He was like, oh, yeah. Uh, all the guys had that fight or flight sense to them that I met. I mean, I don't, only met 10 people probably. So by no means was it exhaustive. And so that was your, that was your experience. Yes, an environment that is really meant to break you um, and deteriorate you mentally. You know, when I was in Rikers Island, um, our country was going to war with Iraq. And I kept on thinking, you know, 20 years old, you know, my, my life seemingly was over. Um, and, I, and, I, and I just hoped that I had the opportunity to go to war and like die for a cause that was better than, than the one I was losing my life for. You know, um, that's what I was thinking. I was in solitary confinement. I used to wake up and I was like, damn, I wish I, 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 I would get sent to Iraq right now. So you, you had solitary at Rikers. Yeah. That was your first time. Yeah, the Central Punitive Segregation Unit. And that was because you punched someone? Like, How did you get solitary? <sighs> My first time I, I, I went to solitary confinement was for 90 days for a fight over the phone. There was slot times, half an hour um, calls, 21 minutes for one call and then six minutes. And um, actually, no, total 21 minutes, 15-minute call, um, and then a six-minute call. And uh, my son's mother at the time I had a, a, a when I got arrested my son was five months old um she used to work at a Dwayne Reed pharmacy and used to come out of work late at night so I used to have to call her um like around nine o'clock at night and those who got on the phone around that time had to be the toughest because as the later it got to like locking in um the harder was it was for for someone to get on the phone that was sort of the culture of Rikers Island you're found guilty you're sent up to where? Um, well, you, you first go to the reception and classification center, which is in downstate. Um, it's called Downstate Correctional Facility um, in Fishkill, New York. And then from there, you get shipped to different facilities. I went to Sing Sing first. I spent a couple of months there and then up to Five Points Correctional Facility in central New York. And so, you know, I have this idea, uh, and I think there's a kind of a nationwide movement on this criminal justice reform. And the thought is, you know, we've got this really punitive, degradating system. And that makes absolutely no sense. Most people come out worse than they, they went in. 
less a chance to be a taxpaying citizen, less a chance to be a loving father. You somehow came out the other end, healed, uh, smarter, more intu- intuitive, this beautiful human being. And so what happened? How did that happen? Well, you know, part of it was, you know, um, deep introspection and kind of in spite of that, like very violent environment, um, kind of going on a journey to try to like figure out like how did I end up here? Um, I did a lot of reading. Um, I I started off, um, I'm not religious, but I started off reading the Bible a lot. Um, and reading a lot of books, um, kind of went on an autodidactic um, journey and to, to try to um, try to understand myself a little bit better. But the, the I think the turning point for me was getting into the Bar College Prison Initiative Program, you know, and, and getting a high quality liberal arts education while still in prison. Um, and, and that really made all the difference to me. You know, college and prison programs were decimated because of the 1994 crime bill all across the country. But um, college and prison programs help people to, you know, not only sort of understand yourself a little better. You know, when you're reading like Plato and, and Socrates and all of these philosophers, um, you know, it, it teaches you a lot about life. Yeah. For, for, for those that don't know, uh, you know, Pell Grants, loans to, and grants for prisoners to, to take college were, were canceled. Uh, which makes absolutely no sense. We've been trying to fight to get those back. Uh, I tell you one little vignette. I visited the Bard Prison uh, Program, uh, Bard Prison Initiative at Fishkill up in New York. And of anything I've seen in the world in the last four years, it was the most transformative. I sat for two hours with probably eight to 10, I'd say 25 to 40-year-old men who had thrown themselves into this program and to their studying uh, and the scholarship. And if I'd closed my eyes, I would have been like, this could be at Oxford in their PhD program. The level of scholarship was so intense and so high. And I was thinking when I went there, I was like, ah, it'll probably be some crappy male in college. And I was like, dude, these guys would compete at Harvard, Princeton, Yale, anywhere they went. Uh, and for me, it was that moment of, you, you say you believe in second chances, but I was like, whoa. Second chances. These guys have had a second chance and gave themselves a second chance and have come out the other end completely transformed. And then you look, the Bard Prison Initiative has uh, like a 1% recidivism rate, right? right? It works. And Absolutely. so what, what's, what's special about that? Is it, talk about Bard for a second and how, because it wasn't just you that came out. I mean, 99% people going through it come out, get a job, lead a productive life. Uh, what do they do different than everyone else? I think, um, you know, being equipped with the, um, you know, some, some tools to for, sort of communicate your ideas, the ability to write well, you know, the ability to develop your critical thinking skills. Um, I used to, when, when, when I started BARD, I remember I, I used to say a lot, no, the system did this to you, the system. And I remember sitting with one of my professors and he was like, define that for me. What do you mean by that? Right. And, and, and I, like I had, I had to unpack a lot of things. Right. And it gave me a language to sort of talk about how did I end up where I'm in now? And, 
you know, from the neighborhood that I grew up in to a prison in New York state. And like that through line is that Bard allowed me to sort of investigate and, and, and like think deeply how I ended up in the place that I was in. So one of my thoughts is that everyone who goes into prison is traumatized. They're traumatized in their youth. They're traumatized in the act of committing a crime. I mean, listen, everyone in the world is traumatized, but people going to prison are especially traumatized. And so you're dealing with a whole community of people that are going through trauma that have had experienced deep trauma and are continuing to experience trauma in prison. And so it sounds like Bard was part of your ability to process this trauma. Uh, did you see it that way? Or yeah, is it, I mean, did it just kind of naturally happen? Did you ever say, geez, I was traumatized and now I'm processing it? Or was it a natural, and you look back on it, is that what happened or am I just making that up? No, I think that a liberal arts education allows you to like investigate and examine your own life. But at the same time, I think it's deeper than that. And I mean, to this day, I th- I'm, I'm, I'm still um, not quite sure the, the, the entirety um, of, of, of that experience and how it has impacted me. Um, a colleague of ours said recently to me, um, you know, you were sexually abused for 12 years that you was in prison. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And she said, yeah, what did you have to do every time you came off the visit? And I had to pause for a second because she's right. Every time I come, you know, go see my family in the visiting room and I go back into the prison, I had to strip and bend over and spread my butt cheeks and show the guard, right? And that is, uh, uh, you know, the first time I did that, I was like devastated. I, I felt like violated. But over a period of time, that becomes normal. Um, and it's not. Um, so... It's it, it, it's it's difficult to to really understand like all of the impact that that has on a person's life. Yeah, it was interesting when we we visited prisons in Germany about two years ago and in Norway, and you know they have their own bathrooms in the prison cells. Like they've got a right to privacy. the 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 punishment happens when you lose your liberty, and after that, the whole system is set up to try to rehabilitate. Have that citizen return as a productive member of society. And so you don't lose your right to privacy. You don't lose your right to vote. You don't you lose your right to dignity. Quite frankly, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Uh, and that's the one thing I've noticed, not that I'm an expert at U.S. prisons or, or jails. It all feels like it's meant to strip you of your dignity. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, shitting in an open toilet in lots of places or, you know, strip searches. Uh, from a purely business perspective, Mike, if you're looking at how much recall the prison is doing, right? If the human beings were product, right? Well, I will argue that the prison system treats one as as if they are, but over two thirds of people are are, re, are are being recalled back into that. You know, like they're so you're putting out broken human beings every single year and you're not, you know, you're not rehabilitating them. I think that we should, you know, do away with a system like that. Any, any business would have been, um, already, um, gone bankrupt. Um, but no, we keep pumping more money into that system. All right. So let's look forward a little bit. 
you made it out. Uh, you were well educated. Uh, you found some peace in understanding who you were. Uh, talk about life post. You walked out the door when? So I came home three weeks after the 2016 election, um, stepping into an interesting world. So four um, years ago. Four years ago, yeah. And the dwindling sort of um, days of the Obama administration. Uh, but, you know, I had, a, I, had a, I had an interesting exchange before I left prison. And that was with the president of the Ford Foundation, Darren Walker. Um, and this is where being proximate is really key because he came in there to have a conversation with me and some of my peers about how the Bar College Business um, Initiative was going, which they were funding. Um, and one thing that I, I hope they keep funding. <laughs> one thing that I that I that I emphasized to him was that you know we're getting this great liberal arts degree from Bard, but it's not a panacea. We're still going to face many hurdles upon release. Um, and I asked him, will you hire formerly incarcerated people at your foundation? And he did just that. And I think that that conversation is what led me to be sitting next to you now, Mike. Interesting. So you got a job. You got a wife. I do. I um, You got a house. recently married. I bought a condo in Stanford, Connecticut. Um, I work for um, Galaxy Gives as a program officer managing its criminal justice portfolio. Um doing the work of um, preventing, you know, someone um, from my neighborhood to, you know, go, go into prison just like I did. That's the kind of work I'm doing now. So let's think forward. Let's think bigger. Uh, you're 35, 35 years old. You've got a good 45 years ahead of you. <laughs> Productive years. Uh, you got a big IQ. Uh, you've learned a ton. You've got a story and a narrative that gives you power. Uh, you might not think it, but it does because anyone overcomes what you've overcome and come out the other side has power. What are you, what are you going to be when you grow up? <laughs> I ask everyone that question, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I, um, if I could leave this world and haven't made an impact on dismantling the carceral state and reducing the number of people in our prison system um, and just having a, a, a little bit of impact on that. Um, you, know, you I, I love your, your analogy of um, redirecting energy. If we could redirect our energy towards that um, and, and lessering um, human suffering. Um, and again, like preventing a kid who had the curiosity and the potential to do um, something great with his life. Um, rather than going into the streets like I went to. Um, so let me ask you a question. This is, I've met a ton of people that have, are returning citizens that all come back to work in the criminal justice reform space. You know, from Desmond Mead, who I love, to, to, to tons of them. And one reason has been other doors aren't opened. It's like this is one of the few places that people can get a job. Uh, how do we change that mindset? Now, part of this is a, it's a mission. You got a mission from God, as, as the Blues Brothers would say, mm -hmm. right? You, you lived it and you were like, okay, if I can help, that will give my life purpose. And so that's very noble. But is it also because you didn't think you were allowed to think outside of that space? Like you could be a CEO or a, you've, you've got all the talents to do anything you want to do. Uh, do you think 
there's something endemic that we need to change to give people that come out an open-mindedness that they can work and it doesn't have to be in the criminal justice space? Yeah, I mean, part of it is um, preparing people for that. Um, I wouldn't say that's um, only with people have, that have gone to prison. There's a lot of people that never been to prison that are struggling, that can't get a job in, in certain industries. Um, it has to do with our public education system, um, but certainly has to do with communities being targeted and criminalized. Um, so I, I think there's there's a few systems of oppression that we got to look at. Um, but our criminal justice system, for sure, doesn't prepare you for a job um, other than, you know, maybe manual labor. Um, so that's something that we definitely need to look at. Are you optimistic? I am. I have to be. You know, my son was um, 15 years old now um, and wants to play in the NBA um, one day. Um, I have to 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 think that uh, I'm going to leave in a better world than the one that I was confronted with. How many books did you read when you were inside? Wow. Roughly. Not quite sure I could put a, a was, number. Was that, was probably was that one weird silver lining that you had all the time in the world so you could read so much? Because I tell you, very few people read hundreds of books. I, I really think um, reading saved my life. Going back to that first time I landed in um, solitary confinement, uh, I was next to this Italian guy who had a whole bunch of mafia books and left them to me when he left um, the you know, what we call the box, solitary confinement. I remember one of the first books I read was The Murder Machine. And it was- <laughs> just, just what you're supposed <laughs> yeah, to read. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but, uh, you know, find, finding myself in, in in characters that lived wildly different lives from me or some similar, um, I, 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 I kind of, you know, pulled through in those dark days. What was the most impactful book you read? In your life, if you had to give one book to your 15-year-old son when he's 25, what, what's the book? Wow. I would say Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man. I think it's a perfect novel. Um, if there was ever a perfect novel, was that. Like every sentence, every paragraph, um, it was just beautifully constructed. Um, and, it, and, and it actually took me some time to get, the first time I tried to read it, I couldn't get into it. Interesting. Um, but the, you know, when, when the second time I read, I was in Bard and I was just flummoxed by um, the beauty of um, Ralph Ellison's prose and like how much um, I saw myself in his main character. Hey, you're a great advertisement for a liberal arts education. <laughs> <laughs> really, you know, Williams, Princeton, Wellesley, those guys should recruit you just as a, a salesman for liberal arts. Uh, it's interesting. A lot of people go to school these days and they, you know, move into some more vocational tract. But now I have a real appreciation for, you know, learning how to think and read and write and communicate what you learn at yeah. liberal arts places. I think it makes us better citizens. Um, part of the reason why we have so much misinformation right now is because we're, we're not. We don't take the time um, to really um, inform ourselves. It's easier in the social media age to be um, outraged than informed. And 
we we too readily um, look at headlines that, that that we agree with and and accept it as truth. Um, and and in fact, it may be uh, misinformation. We just had a big election. What's going to happen in the next four years? And let me ask you another question. If you're a young 14-year-old in the Bronx, does it matter? Like Obama, Bush, Trump, has anyone helped the, the 14-year-olds in the Bronx? Well, part of, part of it is like you, you're 14. You, you, you don't really care about those things. You want to be, you know, shooting But I'm just saying the impact. The impact, the impact right? I think I think it does. I think I think that this election is gonna is gonna definitely um change the trajectory of a lot of people's lives. I was gonna say that Steve Imsky said that history doesn't really um think about first uh, a president who's only served one term, one term presidents, and Trump is hopefully going to be a one-term president unless he pulls a Grover Cleveland on us. Uh, <laughs> Very few people would know that Grover Cleveland ran a second time. Right, right. He's actually the the 22nd and 24th president. I, I'm hoping that, that history um, won't, you know, kind of see this as an aberration. But I also am, am, am like pellucid about the fact that, you know, Trump is just a, a, a symptom of, of where we are as a country. Um, and, you know, it's going to take a lot of work to also dismantle white supremacy, patriarchy, um, and a lot of other, you know, systems of oppression that we're fighting to, to take down. Excellent. All right. Alex, I want to thank you a lot. It's one of the things I've learned in life that there's plenty to learn all along the way. And it's not always from the, the professor or the CEO that you're going to learn things with. So I love his story. Uh, I love him. Uh, Thank and, you, Mike. I was a little nervous, must admit. You didn't seem it. You, you seemed cool as a cat. <laughs> We're going to be back at you soon at one point uh, with more Next with Novo. Uh, hopefully you bring in stories that matter, uh, insights that matter, and uh, people that you're fascinated with. So thank you. Thank you.